At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Church family, you may be seated, and you may turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll be in verse 31 this morning. So thrilled you were able to get here safely in the snow. I deeply resent any comments that have been made to me about the happenings of football games yesterday, but in the spirit of brotherly unity in Christ, I'm going to press forward. And I deserve all of that because I've had nine years of good times so far. Um, what are you sure about? What are you sure about? And after this week, you might be sure that you ate a, a whole lot too much. <laughs> uh, I find myself in that camp. You may be sure that uh, your family is strange. You might be sure that You aren't the strange one. Be careful. You're in dangerous ground if you feel that way. Uh, You might be sure of um, some people in your life that you desperately love or desperately um, dislike, that they'll never change, and that you're stuck with this situation forever. Now, what we're sure about, whether it's death or whether it's taxes or whether it's anything in between, that changes how we live day to day. And we've been in a series, really two series, broken up, looking at Romans chapters 5 through 8 now, where Paul has been laying out a truth that he ultimately was sure of. He was sure of our outcome and our identity in Jesus. He was confident in that. And he's spoken at length about that. And as we wrap up the very end of this today, before we start an Advent series tomorrow, I think the best thing we can do is recap some of what he stated. He was clear that we were not at peace with God. In fact, God was against us because we deserved that. Because we had rebelled against him. Because we were broken. Because we were sinful. But now through Jesus, he taught that the war was over, that God welcomes us into his perfect presence by grace through faith, and he pours his love into us through the Holy Spirit. He showed us the immensity of his love for us, specifically by dying for us in our place. And because he died for you, you have the chance to be justified, made right through Jesus. We saw that in chapter 5. We saw that sin used to control you, killing you, but now grace reigns in your life and gives you real, lasting life. We saw that in 521. We saw that eternal life was a great promise, not just for someday, though that's true, but for today. We now live by the Spirit. We saw that in chapter 7, that we can't be condemned, that we're set free from the law of sin that used to control us, and now we have life today in the Spirit. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 8. More than just life, we saw that we were adopted, brought into his family, co-heirs with his son. 
And he embraces us with all the love and all the joy of a good father. It's his pleasure to make you his heir and to transform the world through you, his child. We saw that God looks at you like a proud dad looking at his kid. The Spirit praying for you towards God's will and the Father turning all things for your good so that he safely, successfully takes you to the end of your story, his glory working into you glory. That's what Paul's been telling us over and over again. That's life to all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul was sure of this. But maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm not so sure. You might be holding out a little bit. Your life experience has been such that you're not confident that what Paul has been talking about for four chapters is a reality for you. Maybe it's because you feel like you've been disappointed with your life. God can't possibly be that for me. My life has not been anything worth wanting. You might feel like, man... (laughs) I don't know if I believe that because I'm disappointed in myself. When I look at who I am, when I look at what I do, when I look at the things that I'm ashamed of, I can't get away from that haunt me at night. Like, I I don't know how anyone could love me that much. I'm not sure. What we're sure about changes the way we live. What does all of this mean in in Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8? If... My life is a disappointment. If I'm a disappointment. Well, Paul opens Romans 8, verse 31, saying this. What then, what then shall we say to these things? What are we supposed to say about this? What are we supposed to think about this? What are we supposed to do about this? If A spirit-filled life in Christ really is this incredible. What does that mean? What do we think in response? Paul sets up an answer for us if we're in that category of wondering if this could really be true. Paul answers that question, what shall we say to these things, by asking a series of questions himself. Rhetorical questions, where the answer is implied and backed up by the character and nature and actions of God. So let's look at that this morning. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul starts off first by asking this question, Who can be against us? And he quickly answers an obvious answer to that. Who can be against us? No one. No one. Paul argues that nothing stands a chance at affecting our lives in a way that matters with any kind of weight or eternal significance. Because, he says, God has done something so big, so big, that nothing else could possibly be considered too big for God to do for his glory, the advancement of his kingdom, and his work in and for us. Nothing else could be too big a thing for God to be willing to do. 
We'll talk about this specific example here, but the immediate impact to me is confidence and encouragement. We might feel like at times we're not sure that God really loves us. God really sees us. God really knows us. And Paul encourages us, if we're in this situation, stop. Who can be against you? No one, because look at what God has already done for you. You want to know how much God is for you? Look at his role in providing rescue for us. He was willing for his son to sacrifice himself for us. That father-son relationship, that's something we know in a broken way in our life, something we know in a broken, imperfect way in our culture. And God's own story of his work throughout history and scripture is filled with imperfect examples of fathers and sons. They drive home the point that, hey, uh, a father's love for a son is something huge and isn't just needlessly squandered. We see in 2 Samuel the the moment where Absalom, King David's son, is killed in the middle of leading a rebellion against David. His own son turns against him, rebelling against him, trying to steal the throne and the kingdom and the people's hearts away from David. And yet we see a picture of a father's heart for a son because when David gets the news that Absalom has been killed in this battle, His response is this, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, my son, my son. In the middle of, you know, obviously an imperfect guy, David's laundry list of skeletons and mistakes in his closet is large. But even such a dad, in a moment where his son is wholly against him, is devastated, wishing that he could substitute himself in the place of his son. Because a father loves a son like that. We see another moment in Abraham's life, in the sacrifice of Isaac, or the near sacrifice of Isaac, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and God makes it clear whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. This kind of moment this is, this is not only Abraham's son, but this is his future. This is in his inheritance. This is his heritage. This is a sacrifice too large to make. But Abraham walks to the top of a mountain. And in the moment of being willing to follow God's instruction, God intervenes. Genesis 22 tells us the moment where God interrupts and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything for him, because now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son. You were willing to go that far. Now I know you really fear me, your only son from me. Abraham, in that moment, then lifted up his eyes and looked, and there in a thicket was a ram caught by its horns, and he took that ram and offered it up as an offering instead of his son. And so Abraham says, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God's work throughout history shows examples of how fathers would do anything to avoid losing their sons. 
that what it would cost for a father to allow his son to be sacrificed was insurmountably large. And also how incredible it is, in the story of Abraham specifically, it is to have a substitute where that kind of sacrifice doesn't need to be made. And yet, when it comes to God the Father and God the Son, when we needed a substitute, God, a perfect Father, didn't spare God the Son. We know that scripture well, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus on the cross, showing the dramatic agony of this separation, calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see some of God's answer to that question in this passage. God is saying, I, I gave you up for all those who, to whom I'll call myself. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I've forsaken you, Jesus, on the cross for those who I'm going to call so that I can make them like myself. I can give them your right standing so that I can continue to give them all things so I can demonstrate there's no length too large. Having spared no expense, having given the greatest thing, we're left by Paul with the question, isn't God obviously willing to do anything for our good. That's how invested God is in you. That's how invested God is in you. Is he planning to back out? Since God is for us and on our side, the forces, Paul says, that are against us, because they're there, those forces are insignificant. They amount to nothing. They don't win. In fact, they ultimately always end up working for our good. That's how we need to think about God's inclination to us. When we find ourselves doubting his love or questioning his goodness towards us in a moment of hurt and a member of pain, remember, he's already done more than we could have ever imagined for us. So whatever is happening now is less than that and for our good. That's what we put it in context with. What could stand against such power and love for us? The answer is obvious. Nothing. Nobody. And Paul continues. He says, you can be sure of this. Nothing's against you. You can also be sure of this. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? He says in 33. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. Paul borrows the language of a, of a courtroom environment here, right? Leveraging two similar actions to bring a charge and to condemn. And he's asking, who can bring a charge against us? Who can leverage accusations against us? And ultimately he's saying, while it might happen, no one succeeds. No one can bring a charge against us. God has made us right before himself by his own work through Jesus dying in our place and for our sin. And so we, we can imagine with Paul the illustration he brings up that yes, you and I, we sit in a courtroom and if we were to sit in that moment and everything that we've done wrong, every thought, 
every action, all the pain, all the things we've missed out on doing good, and all the ways we haven't advanced his kingdom, and all the implications of that down the line, if we sat under the weight of that, the answer would be clear. We'd be guilty. That's how we all stood, and Paul made that clear in the beginning of Romans chapter 5. We were guilty, but in the moment of that verdict being pronounced, our defense stands up and says, I've paid the price for them. So they are free and clear. They have right standing now. Jesus was for us. And let me admit, we do feel condemnation. We do feel unworthy. We accuse ourselves and we're called out by spiritual forces. But when God is the one who justifies, the verdict is sure. When Jesus is the source of that justice and he's alive and he's present and he's interceding, he's arguing and encouraging for us right now, no accusation gets to succeed. I love the way Tim Keller put it. In looking at this passage, he says this, if you didn't earn your salvation, right, as God's work for us, if you didn't earn your salvation, how are you going to unearn it? We do feel the weight of our mistakes, of our rebellion, of our sin. But in Christ, when we repent and believe in his work for us, nothing can stand against us. Since it's God who justified you, Paul is saying that your place with God is secure. And he keeps going. In 35, he says this. Who then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or or distress, persecution, famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword as it's written... He quotes Psalm 44 here. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's final question brings up the possibility, hey, is it possible for Jesus to stop loving you when you're in Christ? And maybe we should pause there for a second because I know I don't live under the weight of this reality enough that Jesus loves us. He loves the world, yes, all humanity, yes, he loves His church, yes, he loves our church, yes, but specifically, he loves me. He knows he loves you. Paul makes that assumption here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus loves you. He sees you. He knows you. Paul's making a strong claim That what can separate you from a loving, risen king? Nothing. What can separate us from Christ's love? No one. Nothing. 
Paul is quick to admit, in the middle of being loved by Jesus, life doesn't go well for us. He, he admits, listen, there are things that might seem to separate you. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It seems like we're being killed all the time. Like sheep to be slaughtered. The realities of a life might fool people into thinking that God does not love us. But no matter the brokenness, Paul is claiming that God sees our hurt, our distress, our famine, the things we lack, our danger. And he's compelled towards you all the way through those in love. He's acting towards us all the way through that in love. There's a tension in this, right? A risen king holding us in a tight embrace in love, and yet Paul chooses to quote Psalm 44. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded to be sheep. He could have quoted another psalm. A psalm that's more in line with the victory that he seems to be pointing to. I would have loved it if Paul quoted Psalm 18. He will deliver me. He delights in me. I will pursue my enemies and catch them. I won't turn my back till they're destroyed. Man, I'd sing that song. I will crush them. They will not be able to stand. They will fall under my feet. Man, what? Paul knew that psalm. Why did he quote Psalm 44 instead of Psalm 18? In the moment of knowing Jesus' love for us, his illustration betrays the point he's making. Like we saw last week, Paul admits bad things, sinful things, wicked things, broken things happen to Christians, to all people. But Paul is asserting that bad things happening doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. You might have to rethink some of your personal story to reconcile this truth. That that thing you went without, that that hurt you've been walking under, that that hope that has never been fulfilled doesn't mean God doesn't love you. How could that possibly be true? In an upside down and not of this world, and first kind shall be last kind of way that God always seems to be operating with, evidently we can lose everything and yet in God win. That love wins no matter what. In fact, Paul uses the term that we're super victors, we're more than conquerors, that we conquer through a God who loves us. That's what he's claiming here. Think to make sense of this all, we have to admit that we try to define conquer in ways that God doesn't try to define victory. Man, in our culture, in my life, if I define what conquering through a God who loves us looks like, man, that means territory taken. That means income raised. That means hurt destroyed. We're walking through a Christmas season where we're going to be singing about and hoping for peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and yet a news reel that's going to be playing it back in the opposite way. How does conquer, how does victory work out in the middle of that? When we think of our relationship with God, we may think of something that feels uncertain. 
as if God's affection towards us is based on our actions, as if God's relationship towards us are based on our experiences and circumstances. Paul is saying we don't have victory or success. Ultimately, we don't have an identity or rescue or salvation based on what we do. We're saved based on the love that God has for us, based on the work that he has accomplished for us, that nothing can touch our identity in Christ because nothing is greater than God's love which spared no expense to make us in Christ. That we can't mess up our relationship with God. Our life can't mess up our relationship with God when he's the one who created that relationship with him. Maybe we should say it this way. God's love for us is a bigger victory than we can imagine. It's a bigger victory than we can imagine, and it depends on something we can't mess up. God's love for us is a bigger victory than we can imagine, and it depends on something even we can't mess up. That is what Paul says is conquering. That is victory. Paul's point is not that we should become self-actualized, that we should experience a blessed life, that we should experience abundance in this life. His point is how resilient we can be, how grateful we can be, how sacrificial we can be, how strong in our love back to God we can be, no matter what life looks like. Because God has loved us and awoken us into life and freedom to know and love him, the very person we were created to image and to know. We can know peace and joy now and forever. That's a victory that can't be taken away. And he drives home that victory with a series of couplets, pairs of things, I'm sure. And neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, or things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, I'm sure nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, no power, nothing, the anxieties and the worries of today, nothing, the fears and uncertainties of tomorrow, nothing can take us away from the relationship of love God has for those who are in Christ. So what are we sure about? If that is true, what are we sure about? I think Paul was probably sure of death and taxes. And in fact, the guy he paid taxes to arrested and executed him not too long after he wrote this letter to a group of people who not too long after they received this letter were going to be hunted down and burned. But Paul was sure that this group of believers could know that God's love was for them in such a way that they had all the victory they needed. There. That's something I can be sure about. We win because God loves us. God's love is the win. So in Christ, what can we know? Jesus died in our place for our sins. When we repent, we believe in him. We're in Christ. And then in Christ, God is for you. Nothing's against you. In Christ, God accepts you. Nothing can bring a charge against you. 
He's accepted you. When you're his, Jesus has done everything to make you right before him. And in Christ, God always loves you. Even later on today, when you're not sure you love yourself, God loves you. Nothing can separate you. Are we sure of this? How, how might Woodside White Lake, how might the Hickson family, how might you live differently? How does this change the way we come before God and worship and in prayer? How does this change the way we orient our priorities in life, knowing a victory that can't be taken away and that wholly defines us as ours forever? How does this change the way we attack what we're afraid of tomorrow? Romans 8 gives us confidence. We are held firm. We are held fast as we sing. We're victorious in life and living. The storms, yes, that's a given. But the conquering victor, adopting us into his love, that is the undeserved, unshakable, unstoppable promise that we can be sure of forever. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.